choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 300 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 14, Lunar Module Pilot Edgar Mitchell. Today we continue our biographical episodes for Apollo 14 with the extraordinary life of Edgar Mitchell. Edgar Dean Mitchell was born on September 17, 1930 in Hereford, Texas. He came from a ranching family that moved to New Mexico during the Depression and considered Artesia, New Mexico, near Roswell, as his hometown. Mr. Mitchell spent many days on horseback and learned to fly when he was only 13. While growing up, he was active in the Boy Scouts where he achieved its second highest rank of Life Scout. He was also a member of Demole International part of the Masonic Fraternity for Young Men ages 12 to 21, and was eventually inducted into its Hall of Fame. During his youth, he enjoyed handball, tennis, and swimming, and his hobbies included scuba diving and glider soaring. Mitchell graduated from Artesia High School in 1948, and he worked his way through college at Carnegie Mellon University earning a B.S. degree in industrial management in 1952. That same year, he entered the U.S. Navy and completed basic training at San Diego Recruit Depot. Mitchell served in the Korean War and later trained as a test pilot under Chuck Yeager, the first person to fly faster than the speed of sound. In May 1953, after completing instruction at the Officer Candidate School at Newport, Rhode Island, he was commissioned as an ensign. He completed flight training in July 1954 at Hutchison's, Kansas, and was designated as a naval aviator and was subsequently assigned to Patrol Squadron 29 flying land-based patrol planes deployed in Okinawa. From 1957 to 58, he transitioned to carrier-based jet aircraft and flew the A-3D Sky Warrior while assigned to Heavy Attack Squadron 2 deployed aboard the aircraft carriers USS Bonhomme Richard and USS Ticonderoga. Mitchell qualified as a research pilot and flew with Air Development Squadron 5 until 1959. While on active duty in the Navy, he earned a second bachelor's degree in aeronautics from the U.S. Naval Postgraduate School in 1961. The Navy acknowledged and encouraged Mitchell's education, particularly his research on space exploration. After Sputnik, 
NASA had asked the leading technical institutes like MIT, Princeton, and Caltech to set up graduate programs in the aeronautical and astronautical disciplines. Mitchell earned a doctorate of science in aeronautics and astronautics at MIT, becoming one of the first to earn such a degree. His 1964 doctoral thesis, published through MIT's Experimental Astronomy Laboratory, was titled Guidance of Low-Thrust Interplanetary Vehicles. While he was at MIT, Mitchell did some teaching as a graduate assistant, and one of his students was Charlie Duke, who was getting a master's degree in the same field. After attaining his doctorate, Mitchell originally thought he would be going to Houston to work with NASA's Guidance and Control Division, having requested that assignment. But the Navy had other ideas. Mitchell said that they shanghaied him. As the story goes, Mitchell received a call from the Pentagon when he was on the way down to Houston. He was visiting his mother-in-law in Pittsburgh when he received the call, and he was informed his orders had changed and he was sent to Los Angeles to work with the Manned Orbital Laboratory Program under Jack Van Ness. Mitchell served as technical director for the Navy's participation, but after a year of working there, he sensed that it wasn't going to go anywhere. So he petitioned his boss to help him go to Edwards because that was where most of the astronauts were being selected from. Mitchell got his assignment to the Aerospace Research Pilot School, also known as ARPS, at Edwards Air Force Base, but his technical brilliance meant that he would have to wear two hats, and he would cross paths with manned orbiting laboratory astronauts, most of whom, like Hank Hartsfield, had been through an earlier ARPS class themselves. Mitchell said of the Edwards experience, quote, I wrangled my way out there. I already been at China Lake, essentially as a test pilot. But when I got to Edwards, I was teaching advanced propulsion techniques. So I was both an instructor and a student who went through the space portion, which was what I was interested in. As it turned out, all of the manned orbiting laboratory guys came through Edwards. I was teaching them fuel optimization techniques, end quote. Mitchell acknowledged that he and Stu Rusa may have passed each other in the halls while they were both at Edwards in the mid-1960s. Rusa would have been wrapping up his own test pilot class and beginning his test flying assignment around the time Mitchell, who was a member of the class 65B, arrived. Mitchell attended the Aerospace Research Pilot School from 1965 to 1966 when he graduated first in his class. In total, Mitchell accumulated 5,000 hours flight time, including 2,000 hours in jet aircraft. Mitchell attained the rank of commander while at Edwards. Now let's move on to his NASA career. Mitchell was the oldest member of the original 19 astronaut, Group 5, and referred to himself as the senior guy in the group. In the astronaut office, it was his intellectual bent that set him apart from some of the other pilots, along with a certain hard edge. By his own admission, 
he had an impatient streak, and when angered, he was capable of outburst of temper. But when Mitchell spoke, it was with the soft voice of a midnight FM radio announcer. Stuart Rusa shared an office with him and used to wonder how anybody on the other end of the phone conversation with him could understand what he was saying. But Rusa respected him as a professional. Once the NASA assignments got underway, Mitchell demonstrated his technical expertise almost immediately and was quickly dubbed the Brain by the other astronauts. Although the appellation was used behind his back, Mitchell knew about the nickname. Ed also had an interest in paranormal activity and extrasensory perception. And when he was chosen for the original Apollo 13 crew, he privately resolved to attempt personal ESP experiments during his flight. But Mitchell was first assigned to the support crew for Apollo 9, then was designated as the backup lunar module pilot for Apollo 10. This placed him in rotation for Apollo 13, but his crew was switched to Apollo 14 so that Commander Alan Shepard, who had been grounded by a medical problem since the Gemini program, could train longer. During the Apollo 13 crisis, Mitchell was part of the Apollo 13 missions operations team. He worked in the Apollo simulator to help bring the crew back home. One issue he worked on was how to control the attitude of the lunar module with an inert Apollo command service module attached to it. Mitchell, along with the rest of the team, was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President Nixon in 1970. The highlight of Mitchell's career was Apollo 14, where he served as lunar module pilot, landing with Shepard aboard the lunar module and Terry's on February 5, 1971, in the Hilly-Upland-Fromaro Highlands region of the moon. During the flight, Mitchell did well with his command module duties, and during the landing, he carried the load for Shepard with the lander's systems, allowing his commander to concentrate on piloting the limb. In truth, Mitchell rivaled Fred Hayes in his knowledge of the lunar module. Shepard and Mitchell stayed on the moon for 33 hours, deployed and activated lunar surface scientific experiments, and collected almost 100 pounds of lunar samples for return to Earth. Other Apollo achievements include the first successful use of color television with a new Vidicon tube, the longest distance traversed on foot on the lunar surface, the largest payload placed in lunar orbit, the first use of shortened lunar orbit rendezvous techniques, and the first extensive orbital science period conducted during command and service module solo operations. During the mission, Mitchell took photos, including the one with Shepard raising the American flag. In the photo, Mitchell's shadow is cast over the lunar surface near the flag. That photo was listed on Popular Science's photo gallery of the best astronaut selfies. As one of only 12 men to set foot on the moon, 
Mitchell realized that he had a special perspective on the world. He said of his experience seeing the earth from the moon, quote, You develop an instant global consciousness, a people orientation, an intense dissatisfaction with the state of the world, and a compulsion to do something about it. From out there on the moon, international politics looks so petty. End quote. During the nine-day spaceflight, Mr. Mitchell surreptitiously carried out experiments in extrasensory perception. Fewer than 10% of the experiments succeeded, but he considered the number statistically significant, and when he returned to Earth, he knew that his life was changed forever. The results of those experiments were published in the Journal of Parapsychology in 1971. While on his way back from the moon, Mitchell had a powerful spiritual experience. As the Kitty Hawk command module hurtled homeward, Mitchell watched the earth, moon, and sun passing by the window of the rotating capsule in two-minute intervals. Looking out into space, Mitchell later recalled, quote, I realized that the molecules of my body and the molecules of the spacecraft had been manufactured in an ancient generation of stars. In Mitchell's book, titled The Way of the Explorer, he called the experience an overwhelming sense of universal connectedness. Mitchell told People magazine in 1974, quote, The experience I had on the flight was akin to a religious experience. It was euphoric one of those rare moments in life when you seem to be able to reach out and touch the universe, when you had an intuitive flash about the real meaning of truth, end quote. Here's a clip of Mitchell describing the Apollo 14 universal connectedness experience. I had completed my major task for going to the moon and was on the way home and was observing the heavens and the earth from this distance. Observing the passing of the heavens as we were rotating, I saw the earth, the sun, the moon, and a 360 degree panorama of the heavens the magnificence of all of this, what this triggered in my visioning in the ancient Sanskrit is called samadhi. It means that you see things with your senses the way they are, but you experience them viscerally and internally as a unity and a oneness accompanied by ecstasy. matter in our universe is created in star systems. And so the matter in my body and the matter in the spacecraft and the matter in my partner's bodies was the product of stars. We are stardust. And we're all one in that sense.
Mitchell would later undergo hypnosis and deep relaxation techniques to try to recapture the emotions he felt in the Apollo 14 capsule during the three-day return flight from the moon. For two years, Mitchell didn't shave the beard that had begun to sprout as he stood on the moon. The stoic, Texas-born test pilot and Navy veteran who had a doctorate from MIT turned his life upside down as he embarked on a decades-long quest to reconcile the contradictory worlds of science and metaphysics, interstellar exploration, and personal growth. In completing his moon mission, Mitchell logged a total of 216 hours and 42 minutes in space. He was subsequently assigned to serve as backup lunar module pilot for Apollo 16. But Mitchell retired from NASA and the U.S. Navy in October of 1972. Immediately thereafter, he founded Edgar D. Mitchell & Associates of Monterey, California, a commercial organization promoting ecologically pure products and services designed to alleviate planetary problems. Mitchell then began to investigate such fields as acupuncture, astrology, telekinesis, gestalt therapy, fire walking, and healing techniques. He sought out South American shamans and Haitian voodoo priests, promoted the benefits of Tibetan Buddhist lucid dreaming, and visited the homes of people who claimed their children could bend spoons with their minds. In 1973, After moving to Atherton, California, he founded a group called the Institute of Notic Sciences, which sought to blend science with consciousness raising. In 1974, he published a new book titled Psychic Exploration, A Challenge for Science. From 1974 to 1978, Edgar was president of the Palm Beach, Florida-based Edgar Mitchell Corporation. In 1975, he moved to nearby Lantana, Florida, where he resided for the rest of his life. In 1976, Mitchell attempted to secure additional funding for the Stanford Research Institute's Remote Viewing by Psychic Phenomena Research Project. He had a private meeting with then-Director of Central Intelligence, George Herbert Walker Bush. Although Bush declined, he did suggest the pursuit of military sponsorship, which led to the formation of the Stargate Project in 1978. In 1983, Mitchell co-founded the Association of Space Explorers and later served as chairman of the Mitchell Communications Company. In 1997, Mitchell was interviewed for NASA's Oral History Program. In one excerpt from that, he spoke about how he was drawn to the space program, saying, quote, After Kennedy announced the moon program, that's what I wanted, because it was the bear going over the mountain to see what he could see. And what could you learn? And I've been devoted to that, to exploration, education, and discovery since my earliest years, 
and that's what's kept me going, end quote. In 2004, Mitchell claimed that a teenage remote healer living in Vancouver and using the pseudonym Adam Dream Healer helped him heal kidney cancer from a distance. Mitchell said that he had never had a biopsy, but he did have a sonogram and MRI that was consistent with renal carcinoma. Adam Dream Healer worked distantly on Mitchell from December 2003 until June 2004 when the irregularity disappeared. On June 29, 2011, the federal government of the United States filed a lawsuit against Mitchell after discovering that he had placed a camera used on Apollo 14 up for auction at the auction house Bonhams. The litigation requested the camera be returned to NASA. Mitchell's position was that NASA had given him the camera as a gift upon the completion of the Apollo 14 mission. Bonhams withdrew the camera from auction. In October 2011, attorneys representing the government and Mitchell reached a settlement agreement and Mitchell agreed to return the camera to NASA, which in turn would donate it for display at the National Air and Space Museum. Over time, Mitchell became something of an odd man out among astronauts, some of whom would not comment publicly about him. Mr. Mitchell occasionally noted that he grew up near Roswell, New Mexico, where many people believed that an alien spacecraft crashed in 1947. Mitchell said he had never seen a UFO, but he was outspoken in his belief that aliens had probably visited Earth and that the government covered up the evidence. Mitchell was quoted in 1988 as saying, There's a very large portion of people who think I'm totally crazy. I'm sorry they have such tunnel vision about what the nature of reality is, end quote. Mitchell truly believed aliens had visited Earth. He publicly expressed his opinions that he was 90% sure that many of the thousands of UFOs recorded since the 1940s belong to visitors from other planets. Dateline NBC conducted an interview with Mitchell in April of 1996 during which he discussed meetings with officials from three countries who claimed to have had personal encounters with extraterrestrials. He offered his opinion that the evidence for such alien contact was very strong and classified by governments who were covering up visitations and existence of alien beings' bodies in places such as Roswell, New Mexico. He further claimed that UFOs had provided sonic engineering secrets that were helpful to the United States government. Mitchell's book, The Way of the Explorer, discussed his journey into mysticism and space. In 2004, he told the St. Petersburg Times that a cabal of insiders in the U.S. government were studying recovered alien bodies and that this group had stopped briefing U.S. presidents after John F. Kennedy. Mitchell said, We all know that UFOs are real, 
Now the question is where they come from. In July of 2008, Edgar Mitchell was interviewed on Kerrang! Radio. He claimed the Roswell crash was real and that aliens have contacted humans several times, but that governments have hidden the truth for 60 years, stating, quote, I happen to have been privileged enough to be in on the fact that we've been visited on this planet and the UFO phenomenon is real, end quote. In reply, a spokesman from NASA stated, NASA does not track UFOs. NASA is not involved in any sort of cover-up about alien life on this planet or anywhere in the universe. Dr. Mitchell is a great American, but we do not share his opinions on this issue. End quote. Just two days later, in an interview with Fox News, Mitchell clarified that his comments did not involve NASA, but quoted unnamed sources since deceased at Roswell who confided to him that the Roswell incident did involve an alien craft. Mitchell also claims to have subsequently received confirmation from an unnamed intelligence officer at the Pentagon. In an interview for Ask Men, published in March of 2014, Mitchell said that he had never seen a UFO, that no one had ever threatened him over his claims regarding UFOs, and that any statements about the covering up of UFOs being a worldwide cabal was just speculation on his part. In 2015, Mitchell made the astonishing claim that it was aliens, not diplomacy, which prevented the Cold War from descending into the Third World War. In a Daily Mirror interview, Mitchell said, quote, White Sands was a testing ground for atomic weapons, and that's what the extraterrestrials were interested in. They wanted to know about our military capabilities. My own experience talking to people has made it clear the extraterrestrials had been attempting to keep us from going to war and help create peace on earth. Moving on to Mitchell's personal life. He was married to Louise Randall from 1951 to 1972 and fathered two children with her. Following their divorce, he was married to Anita Rettig in 1973 and adopted her three children. Anita described her life with Mitchell as, quote, It was the White House one day, some yoga guru the next. Cary Grant would call one day, and then we would have a bunch of Sufi dancers whirling in our living room. Yuri Geller would come by and bend some metal. I must have met all the nuts, flakes, and fruits in the whole granola box. End quote. The couple divorced in 1984 when Edgar began an affair with former Playboy model Sheila Ledbetter and later fathered a child with her. In the mid-1980s, Mitchell was ordered to pay $1,200 a month in child support to Ledbetter, who had filed a paternity suit. She and Mr. Mitchell were married in 1989 and later divorced in 1999. Sadly, their son Adam Mitchell died in 2010 at the age of 26. Mitchell died 
under hospice care in West Palm Beach, Florida, on February 4, 2016, at the age of 85. He was survived by five children, nine grandchildren, and one great-grandchild. His death occurred on the eve of the 45th anniversary of his lunar landing. As Rosa and Shepard had already died, Mitchell was the last surviving member of the Apollo 14 crew. Mitchell was given numerous awards and honors during his life. I will name just a few. The Presidential Medal of Freedom, the Manned Spacecraft Center Superior Achievement Award, City of New York Gold Medal, NASA Distinguished Service Medal, three NASA Group Achievement Awards. He was inducted into the International Space Hall of Fame in 1979, and he, along with 24 other Apollo astronauts, were inducted into the United States Astronaut Hall of Fame in 1997. He was also awarded honorary doctorates from New Mexico State University, Carnegie Mellon University, the University of Akron, and Embry-Riddle University. In conclusion, the highly intelligent Edgar Mitchell could be physically imposing, intellectually intense, and alternately compelling and confounding. He was health conscious, but a heavy smoker, a scientist who maintained that he had been cured of kidney cancer by a psychic he never met in person. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I want to say thanks for listening to episode number 300 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 14 Lunar Module Pilot Edgar Mitchell. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure bringing it to you. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 131 episodes are now available on the Archive Podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on all podcatchers. I apologize for going so long on this episode, but Edgar Mitchell had just such an interesting life, I kept finding more things to include. And believe it or not, I cut out quite a bit. I want to credit my sources. The Johnson Space Center, Smoke Jumper, Moon Pilot by Willie Mosley. Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz. A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin. Flight by Chris Kraft, the Edgar Mitchell website, browsebiography.com, the Washington Post, Encyclopedia Britannica, and Wikipedia. Today, we are celebrating the 300th episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. It took six and one quarter years to reach this milestone, and we could not have done it except for the continued contributions of the supporters of this podcast. To all you donors, you can declare with confidence that you are a part of the success of this podcast. I could not have done it without you. And I also want to acknowledge my wife of 38 years, Mrs. SRH, 
for all the behind-the-scenes work she does on the podcast every week. And lastly, to all the listeners out there who cannot afford to contribute financially, thank you for listening, and thank you for the words of encouragement that I receive through emails, and thank you for promoting the podcast by word of mouth and social media. For the past several weeks, I have requested that you send in your favorite episode. We had about 40 entries, and Mrs. SRH is here with me to draw five entries from my black felt hat that I recently purchased in Mexico. The winners will receive the new custom 3-inch diameter static cling of the SRH logo patch. All right, Mrs. SRH, are you ready to select the first winner? Yes, I am. The first winner is Rob C. from Australia. That's Rob C. from Australia. The second winner is Brett S. from Virginia. Brett S. from Virginia. The third winner is Blair C. from New Zealand. Blair C. from New Zealand. Our fourth winner is Steve C. from Georgia. Steve C. from Georgia. And our last winner is Jeremy S. from Utah. Jeremy S. from Utah. Congratulations to all the winners. If Mrs. SRH called your name, please email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell me what address you want me to send it to. When you get the static clings, all you have to do to put them on the glass is you pull off the paper backing on the back side and then just apply it to the glass. Sometimes a little moisture may help as well. Okay, now I thought it might be interesting to take a trip down memory lane to read some of the favorite episodes that you sent in. We have organized the emails from the earliest episodes to the latest episodes. Now, almost all these emails included some very kind words uh, for me or Mrs. SRH, and I want you to know how much we appreciate that. We're going to omit that little bit of it, though. We're just going to read excerpts from your email. I have an email here from James K., and I'll read an excerpt, and he said that he likes episode 30, which is... Godspeed, John Glenn, Mercury Atlas 6, Friendship 7, Part 1. And he liked it because listening to the Mercury series really invigorated his thirst for space history. The episode in particular really struck out to him because it was the U.S.'s first true trip in space and around the globe on an orbital path. The clips of John Glenn describing his experience, the fireflies, and the sunrise really made me feel like I was there on the Mercury capsule. Thank you very much, James. Mrs. SRH, would you like to read one of these? Yes. Graham M. from Australia said his favorite episode is number 56, First Spacewalk, Voskhod 2, Part 2. It has to be the most gripping of all. So many terrible things that could go wrong, and so many did. I had to admire the grace under pressure, 
exhibited by Alexei Leonov and Pavel Belzheyev. Who would have guessed that being eaten by wolves was one of the options? Thank you, Graham. All right, I have an email here from Wayne Holmes. He said his favorite episode was number 74, which was Jiminy 8 with Neil Armstrong and Dave Scott, part 3. And he liked it because the whole Jiminy series was great as it filled in a lot of information for me about that program. This episode had lots of clips, followed by your explanation of how events unfolded in space and on the ground. And finally, it was soon after this episode aired that we took a vacation to Ohio. While there, we visited the Armstrong Museum in Wapakoneta. And we were delighted to see the Jiminy 8 capsule proudly on display. And he had a conversation with the docent there. And he shared the podcast, which I do appreciate, Wayne. That's a nice museum in Wapakoneta, by the way. We had about five of you select Apollo 1, so we've grouped those together, and Mrs. SRH is going to read the first. Graham S. from the UK said, It's hard to say it's my favorite, but it's the one I've listened to the most. It's the Plugs Out episodes of the Apollo 1 fire, Episodes 133 to 134. It's so sobering to listen to, and I think to myself, how, when things were absolutely rock bottom at NASA, only two and a half years later, they had reached Kennedy's goal. Thanks, Graham. Okay, J.A. wrote in to say that his favorite episode was also 133, the Apollo 1, Part 1, The Fire. It is my favorite episode because of the true drama and the reminder of how dangerous spaceflight is and how far we have come from that sad day when we lost Grissom, White, and Chaffee. This episode still gives me chills each time I listen to it. Without this horrible incident, we may not have had the opportunity to hear some of the most wondrous events in mankind's history. Thank you, Jay. Mads G. from Denmark shares, As for my favorite episode, I hesitate to name it, but episode 133, Apollo 1, Plugs Out, Part 1, The Fire, drove home to me the dangers of sending people into the harshness of space. With your respectful account of the series of events that led to the fire and the courage to play the audio from the event you took my breath away, I listened to podcasts, including yours, while doing my nightly rounds as a security guard. But with episode 133, I had to wait to listen until I had the time to really engage in what was happening. With your format, I felt I had to pay my due respect to the three astronauts that sadly paid the ultimate price for man's lust for discovery. Thank you, Mads. Let me add one more. Ben D. from the U.K. also shares his favorite episode as number 133, Apollo 1 Fire. He shares, Although hearing the audio was very harrowing, I felt you treated this subject with the respect and reverence it deserved. Thank you, Ben. Okay, Ian J. from the U.K. selected the same episode as his favorite And he said, one of the most tragic events in the whole U.S. space story is Apollo 1, by far the worst and hardest to listen to. 
but it is a critical story that reminds us that although we do our best, getting into space is a challenge, a test, and can go fatally wrong. Those who have passed in the name of exploration make tomorrow's journeys safer for us all, and we thank them so much. And I will tell you, this episode, these two episodes, 133 and 134, were probably the most difficult episodes that I had to do on the whole podcast. Okay, we're going to stop there, and maybe we'll read a few next week as well. But uh, right now, it's time for what you've been waiting for the entire episode. Perhaps. (laughs) It is the Tang Ceremony. So if you have Tang to enjoy along with us, it is now time to get your Tang. Press pause, and we will wait for you. Okay, I hope you're ready. We have our glasses of water ready to go. I have a Tang container here with Tang inside, and let's open that up. (laughs) I just got... Okay, got a little tang on my shirt there. <laughs> All right, Mrs. SRH is here with me, and we're going to put some tang in here. Take you some, here, what about maybe a few teaspoons in here. You got enough? Or yes. another one? Okay. All right, let's stir up the tang. <laughs> stir it up good, because if you don't stir it up, it gets a little dry. All right, caps back on here. All right, okay, we are celebrating 300 episodes today. To 300 episodes. Ah, refreshing. Delicious. Okay, Mrs. SRH just came in and vacuumed up the tang that was accidentally spilled all over (laughs) myself and the chair and the floor. So we're in good shape now. I'll continue with the episode. I do want to recognize the donors that have contributed for the past two weeks. And they are Howard P., who donated above the Orion level, Brent M. from Washington, donated above the Orion level and earned his galaxy emoji. Steve C. from Colorado donated at the Salute Skylab level and earned his rocket emoji. Mike S. donated at the Apollo level and earned his shooting star emoji. Andy M. from Dublin, Ireland donated at the Apollo level and earned his satellite emoji. Dominic C. donated at the Apollo level. Chris N. from the U.K. donated at the Apollo level and earned a shooting star emoji. Matthew F. donated at the Soyuz level and earned his rocket emoji. Francis M. donated at the Soyuz level. D.B. from Maryland donated at the Soyuz level and earned a rocket emoji. Robert C. from Australia donated at the Mercury level and earned his rocket emoji. Mads G. from Denmark donated at the Vostok level. David S. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Patrick M. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Brad pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. And Thomas R. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. We are still at 222 Patreon donors with a goal of reaching 300 before the end of the year. 
Our total donors have reached 336 with a goal of reaching 600 by the end of the year. If you would like to support the podcast, please go to the website spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. For the 336 of you who have already donated for 2019, I certainly appreciate it. This week, we are giving away the SRH logo magnet to one of our lucky winners. Mrs. SRH selected Howard P. If you would email me, Mike at SpaceRocketHistory.com and tell me your address, I will mail this out to you. Okay, folks, that's all we have for episode 300. I will try to have episode number 301 posted by next Thursday. So long for now.